It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. We are revisiting a subject which was part of our first episode about the Me Too movement, Time's Up, employment law, and we had a great conversation with Cheryl Legree, an attorney in Atlanta who's an employment attorney, and she's back. Welcome, Cheryl. And we're adding to the party a man, Marcus Keegan. He has his firm here in Atlanta, Georgia, Keegan Law Firm, and has a great background for us to talk about all sides of sexual harassment in the workplace because he used to work for the EEOC, the government agency that we discussed in the first episode that screens these type of cases before filing and determines a right to sue in certain instances. He's done the defense side of employment cases, and he was a consumer finance lawyer as well. And now with his own practice in nine years, he too, both of our guests, are in the top 100 lawyers in Georgia as super lawyers. And they are here, not carrying their capes, but sipping tea with me as we do on every episode. And we're going to talk about this different than we did before. And the feedback I got was, wow, I didn't know any of this, but my male friends were saying, I have no idea what to do now. And there are good men out there. Not every man is intentional. There are men that are intentional and we're seeing them in the news and they're coming down fast and hard. But there are other men who it's a new landscape. So Marcus, I'm going to start with you and put you on the spot a little bit about suggestions for the good men out there who go to work and have no intent to harass but may say something that's inappropriate or do something that's inappropriate. Can you kind of share with us your experiences of what conduct can put them in that gray area or even send them over into the area that they have a legal issue? I would be happy to do that, BJ. And uh, I think it's important to start by noting that there's a wide spectrum of different types of behavior that's implied when you talk about sexual harassment. And I think there are some things that are obvious to everyone involved. And then there are some gray areas, as you mentioned, uh, where people wonder if it's appropriate to say certain things. I think for men in the workplace, I think it's also important to have an understanding that, you know, this this is an uncomfortable conversation to have. But, you know, I would just ask that that men who are uncomfortable with the conversation sort of take a step back and think about the discomfort that their female coworkers go through about having to address these things. So having said that, I think one of the tips that I would give to someone in the workplace is to just start by when you're in a situation where you're engaging in a conversation or behavior that you think is questionable, Ask your coworker, you know, did I say something that made you uncomfortable? Did I do something that made you uncomfortable? And address that from the beginning if it's something that you have questions about whether that might make your coworker uncomfortable. Are there categories or conversations that are more troublesome than other categories? 
Well, I think, you know, obviously any conversation that's directly about sex is going to be uncomfortable. So that's probably a fairly obvious red flag area. I think also conversations about about people's bodies, um, conversations about people's clothing, uh, potentially, is particularly depending on the manner in which you deliver any kind of a comment. You may think if it's a compliment. Um, yeah, because that's, you know, the com- the compliment thing is a big deal. And I even, I, I'll, I'll confess, I was in court the other day, a lawyer who I know who's just an incredibly great dresser, it was a man, and I saw him after hearing and I said, you know, oh, your argument was brilliant and the tie is fantastic, you know. And then I thought to myself, that probably wasn't good to do. And yet I meant it in a sincerest way that he's always put together for court and puts on the image that a client wants. But I'm already getting in a gray area, I guess. I, he didn't work for me, but still. Well, you know, and I, and I think complimenting someone's tie or, or complimenting someone's earrings or, or uh, something like that, I think it's questionable about whether that's even a gray area, but I, I think I, I've, I've got a lawyer. I've heard, I've got the, heard it from the lawyer. <laughs> but I, you know, I think sometimes it's also about the manner in which you deliver the statement. So if you were to say, you know, oh, that's that's a very nice tie. You always dress very well. I think it's very different than say, you know, you look really hot with that tie on. I think you can sort of uh, deliver the same kind of comment in a different way that makes it sound more inappropriate. And in terms, Cheryl, of women, of what makes them feel uncomfortable, you know, Marcus says here, this is great having a man and a woman to kind of go back forth a little bit. Um, But, you know, if you're saying to a woman, you know, you look nice today and it's more provocative clothing than the typical business attire, you know, does a woman have to get on guard about what she's wearing that it may seem provocative to the other person, but it's perfectly acceptable wear? And it may be if she's a lawyer, she's wearing it to court. You know, there's some women who go to court and they look like back the old TV show years ago. Now I'm drawing a blank on the show, L.A. Law. And every skirt was short and every suit was tight and it had a particular look. But People go in and they look great that way, but that may be perceived as provocative. What says you? It's such an interesting question because I think it goes deeper than the sexual harassment claims. I think it also plays into gender discrimination claims because we don't generally comment on the way men are dressed when they're in court, but people comment on the way women are dressed in court all the time. And so in some respects, I feel like, and even for myself, frankly, commenting on other women's attire I've started thinking twice about even doing that because it plays into the fact that should we be commenting on women's attire at all? But I think the most important thing that Marcus said was a lot of times it's the way it's delivered. Hey, you look hot is never appropriate in the workplace. It's not necessarily illegal, but it could lead to the illegal conduct or the perception of illegal conduct. And Cheryl, what kind of things are you seeing in calls that you get at your office where we're talking about this rush to call lawyers, and we talked about this last time, and finding out maybe the statute of limitations is over and all those things, but that people are calling you and it may be in a gray area. And what advice do you give to an employer in terms of helping make a healthy workplace so there isn't a claim? What doesn't happen a lot, especially at small employers, is training on what's okay and what isn't okay. The safest thing is to never touch your coworkers at all. 
But there are people who are just touchy people. They hug. In general, they hug or they touch someone on the shoulder. And that's where you run into potentially, you know, there are a lot of people who are really uncomfortable with anyone being anywhere in their personal space at all. And so they would perceive that differently than someone who grew up in a big family that always hugged each other and touched each other. And that's what makes it so complicated and creates a lot of the gray areas, because I think there's a lot of people who don't even realize that they've offended someone when they have. And it's an interesting what you say about a small workplace for a large workplace. You know, clearly, a lot of large companies, and we're seeing this in the cases that come forward, and as they go through the legal process, they have all these standards, and that's part of their defense when you are suing them, that we have this in our training, you know, we've done everything we can, but we can't fix a rogue employee. So that's one protection there. But the small company, the mom and pop company, or five or six workers that um, have a shop, or whether it's a seamstress, um, whoever it is, you know, something small, they don't necessarily have the rules in place. But what I'm hearing you say is you may be small, but you need to act big and have some guidelines or at least a conversation so that people feel safe and have an outlet to go to. Would that be fair to say, Marcus? Yes, I think that's true. And I, and I think it's also important to know that the definition of small is different for a lot of different people. So in terms of, from a legal perspective, all it takes is 15 employees to be covered by sexual harassment law. And uh, you were mentioning a five or six employee company, but I know that there are people who have 50 people companies who still think of themselves as a small business and still think of themselves as a mom and pop. And I think the transition as you increase the number of employees when there hasn't been the kind of training that Cheryl talked about, it can just sort of snowball because you have less direct contact with, with the potential people involved. And so it can sort of create this culture where there isn't an expectation about how behavior should be in the workplace. And also just having it written out, that's not enough, really. Or is it enough? In my opinion, it's not enough. Um, I, I don't think just having it written out is enough. I think the actual trainings that occur on a regular basis so that people have an awareness of the inappropriateness of, of certain types of behaviors in the workplace. And I guess an open conversation before the problem is there with each new employee being present with the other employees as well, so they're all hearing the same thing? Because I imagine when you hire people at different times over the years, it's changing. It's changing before our eyes. And that need to renew the information as an employer, whether you're small or large, is another critical piece of the puzzle to, to make people feel safe and men know the rules of what they can and cannot do. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I think it's good to have sort of uh, check-ins on a regular basis, whether it's quarterly or semi-annually or annually, to just sort of make sure people are all on the same page about that. And I think it's also a good opportunity for those businesses to to be able to explain again how you can initiate the process if you do have an issue, if you do have a complaint that you want to bring, that you know where you need to go to make that complaint, which is very important from a legal perspective. And as I've been asking these questions, I keep having in mind overall like a company place or a store. And then now I'm sitting here thinking about what are these other jobs that are out there where people are not in a central location, you know, that you're a repairman or a repair woman and you go out and you're dealing with people and you have a potential for harassment 
or you're not around your fellow employees so much. And then it just popped in my head about sports, tennis pros, golf pros, basketball, you know, all these different sports types things where there's a whole different culture just attached to sport. That could be a whole nother show. How did they protect themselves? Because let's say you are a tennis pro and you're the only female tennis pro at a club with the male pros. And if you say much of anything at a private club, you're out. What kind of protections are there? They're both making a face at me, um, a non-audible face. (laughs) And if we were taping this on YouTube, we would all see just very tight lips like, yeah, um, that's a problem. But there's not an easy solution. Because that's the problem is the societal, cultural, or or, or even, again, we've been taught, we talked about actors and actresses a great deal last time. But they're particularly vulnerable in the same way in the sports industry is vulnerable. Yeah, and I think that's true. Um, I also think that you're right. Uh, you, you read our faces correctly that in some of those situations, there's not necessarily going to be a protection depending on the level of the harassment that's occurred. And so, you know, for... I, I can't pretend to know a whole lot about the the structure for actors or some of the sports industry people that you were referring to, but I assume they're frequently set up in situations where they aren't actually employees. Um, and so that creates a problem. Independent contractors. Right. So you're working for the person and that's how you're making your money. But it's not a real job in the sense of that the rules apply. Right. And that creates a lot of restrictions for potential sexual harassment claims. So you really... There has to be some some very egregious behavior uh, before there's a legal remedy in those kinds of situations. I think that's right. You know, sitting here just trying to puzzle it out in my head, and that was the look on my face because golf pros, for example, tennis pros, I think they're almost almost exclusively independent contractors. Now, that's not to say that there wouldn't be state law torts that or they could work protect for the cl- them, or they could work for the club sometimes. But I don't. I think even then they're set up in situations, and they do it for tax reasons, right, where they set them up as independent contractors. A lot of them are not full-time anything, and they may work at more than one club. Although I guess that is a time that you could also, because I took a quiz online, because that's how good I am at getting ready for this, I found a really interesting workplace harassment quiz. And one of the questions was, can you be personally liable in court for certain harassment claims? In other words, not going after the company, but going after the individual. And the answer was? The answer is yes, you can be. Not under Title VII, the federal law, but under state laws, you can be individually liable for your actions. You know, I will say someone like Marcus or someone like my firm, you know, if you're trying to go after someone for assaulting you, who is essentially judgment-proof, you're probably not going to be able to find anyone to take your case. Now, Ju- judgment-proof, judgment-proof meaning that you don't have enough assets. So it's one thing right. to sue when you know insurance is there because then right. you know you're going to get paid. That's one category lawyers look for. Another category when you're suing is whether the person has enough personal wealth that if you get a judgment against them, the next stage is collecting the judgment. Right. And so that's the part that's tricky as y'all made your faces. Once again, this is a very expressive group gathered here today um, about where the hiccups are. And that's important to know because if you're living that existence and you 
you do have to probably have more conversations to protect yourself or be aware that you may not have the same protections as your friends who work for a company. And also on this quiz, we'll kind of go in a different direction, but this question was an interesting one, and it said, um, is it okay to ask a fellow employee out on a date as long as you don't persist in pursuing them if they say no? Marcus? It depends. (laughs) (laughs) The, The safe, lawyerly answer to every legal question. Well, I mean, you know, the first thing I would ask is, what's the company policy? What does the company policy say about dating within the company? Some companies have policies, many do not. But in most situations, it's okay to ask a coworker out on a date. Um, whether that's a good idea for you as a career move is a different question. But from the perspective of sexual harassment or inappropriate workplace behavior, this, there's not necessarily anything inappropriate about it, provided that if the person says no, you let it go. You let it go. And that's where cases, I'm assuming, come up when the person asking doesn't let go and that that may have just been a prelude to something worse. Absolutely fair to say. And I think what happens so often in a lot of these cases is it's not the first time. You know, if someone called me and said, my boss asked me out yesterday, that's sexual harassment. I said no. You know, my answer would be, well, let's see if it happens again. And if it does, then... And if it does... And if it continues to happen and it starts to affect your employment in some way, then you may have a claim. Now, I don't know how wise it is ever to date in the workplace, but I'm also realistic. And I was thinking about this when I was thinking of coming here today about when I used to work in restaurants before I went to law school and how all the employees dated in the restaurants. It's the culture. That doesn't mean it's wise or the right thing to do. But I know plenty of people who have met their spouses at work. So to suggest that no dating at the workplace is realistic, I would have to say no. And I, and I think Cheryl raises a really good point there. I think what you're doing as a job can make a huge difference. If you are a server at a restaurant and you're dating another server, there's less of a chance, I would think, in that situation that you could do anything to impact their job in the future or impact you know, their ability to have mobility within the company. If you're in a corporate structure, and even if you're at the same level at the time that you're dating, if one of you becomes a manager and one of you is not a manager and you stop dating or you, or you try to continue dating, then there could be a lot of different issues that arise. So I think you know, that's part of the, it depends, answer is that, you know, where you're working, where you are, I think can make a really big difference um, in terms of sort of the appropriateness of, of dating your coworker. Shifting a little bit to same-sex harassment, that also fits and is protected in the same way as opposite sex or no under the law? Absolutely it is. This isn't going to mean much, maybe, but I mean, there is a circuit split on the issue of whether sexual orientation is a protected category at this point. But within the sexual harassment context, there's no dispute that it is covered by Title VII. And circuit dispute in the the federal circuits that govern across our country, we have multiple districts, basically, that cover different states. And those, those courts issue opinions. And then when there's a conflict here and there, they end up migrating to the U.S. Supreme Court, but we're not there now. So there's still some conflict on the circuits a little bit, as you're saying. It's a new issue. Um, And ultimately, the Supreme Court will have to rule on this or the legislation will have to be amended to be clear that it covers. But in the sexual harassment context, there's no split at all. Hostile work environment, sexual harassment, 
or tangible employment action sexual harassment. It doesn't matter if it's heterosexual or homosexual sexual harassment. It's covered. The other thing from our last interview, the most quoted thing I hear, (laughs) and Cheryl knows what it is because she heard it too, nothing good happens after 5 o'clock. And we were talking about conferences and traveling, and I hear you. But is there, Marcus, can you think of some things or guidelines that an employee can set up or an employer should set up in the circumstances that are now that they are not all going to cancel their Vegas seminars or their New York trips or the lawyers are headed to the beach, you know, in Panama City or wherever we're going to go. Those are still happening and that industry is not going to fall apart. What kind of guidelines or, or advice do you have, particularly, again, for our male listeners, about what, how they should be careful in that context? I think there's a couple things that, that men could do in these situations. Um, and I think the things that are coming to my head at the moment really have to do with being an ally to their female coworkers. And I think one of them is to sort of just be aware and mindful I think we were talking about this a little bit off the air beforehand, but men and women obviously communicate in different ways. And I think that men could be better mindful of women's nonverbal cues. I think it can be uncomfortable to sort of necessarily aggressively respond to someone you don't really want to interact with. And I think guys who are on a business trip with their female coworkers can be aware of what their other male coworkers are doing and sort of observant of that behavior and be an ally and say, look, you know, let's talk about something else. You know, maybe we should call it a night, everybody. You know, those kinds of things. I think um, that's the number one thing that would be that would be helpful in those kinds of situations. And then I think the only other thing is just sort of common sense, practical advice about how to behave in a corporate environment. I mean, if you're on a work trip, it's never a good idea to, to get really drunk. <laughs> and and when you're out with your coworkers, be they male or female, it's still not a good idea to do that. And so I think, you know, some of the bad things that happen after five o'clock often relate to alcohol and people letting their guard down and saying things they wouldn't necessarily say when they haven't had anything to drink. And so, you know, if you minimize those interactions when that occurs, I think it's better for everyone involved. But there's this whole thing about team building and building teams. I guess it's building teams doing things without alcohol is what you're saying. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think what. Not without completely. I've been at conferences with Marcus. So, I mean, you know, we go to these conventions and we all have some drinks. We all let our hair down. But they, I think what you said about being an ally is probably the greatest thing I've heard in this whole conversation. You know, because men and women can be allies the person getting hit on, for example, you know, a woman can also go up to that man and say, hey, look, you might want to leave her alone. We can all be watching each other's body language and the interactions and seeing how things are happening and help each other to avoid these situations. Because any suggestion that work travel can be avoided in a lot of industries, that's just not true. You and know, it's unrealistic. I mean, it's, it's how completely road warriors are a substantial part of the workforce. I mean, I'm thinking of sales, for example, and you have to go on these trips and you have to do this work. And if you want to advance with the company, 
your sales need to be at a certain level. And if you're restricted from going certain places because they don't want men and women traveling together, that's just completely unrealistic. And I think you, the second part of what you asked about was, you know, what what companies can do in these situations. And I think that, you know, one of the things is that you can sponsor team building activities that don't involve alcohol. Absolutely. And as Cheryl mentioned, I don't have a problem with drinking, just to be clear. Um, I didn't say you were drinking. <laughs> I'm fine with admitting that. But um, but I think that, you know, if you're going to be the company that's sponsoring an event, you have a little bit of a different responsibility than an individual has um, in terms of, you know, making sure that you offer opportunities to both men and women and making sure that it's in an environment that everyone feels comfortable in. And so I think that y'all have stumbled on the actual tie-in to our tea today because everybody knows Law Talk with BJ, we are sipping on a cup of tea. And creating allies and looking out for each other works perfectly with the sweet tangerine positive energy tea that I selected for today. Because, you know, we're hearing all this negativity in the workplace. We're hearing all this negativity that needs to be brought out. I mean, there are some shocking, disturbing things that we are realizing we have to correct. But we can correct it with positive actions, making alliances, taking a step back and thinking about things, and when uncertain, consult your lawyer um, or the company lawyer or go to someone and try not to suffer in silence because, as we covered last time, there's a lot of time deadlines that are particularly apply to the workplace and trying to stop it and that we may be at a time we're making a shift. So, Marcus, Cheryl, thank you for sharing tea and talk today. And come join us on the next episode of Law Talk with BJ. Thanks, BJ. Thank you. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music theme written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire. Bye.